0: Before we get started, a quick warning. This show contains swearing, and the subject matter isn't appropriate for young children. I woke up to the hotel room door being opened. A man walked in and he said to me, we can do this the easy way, or we can do this the hard way, but you're coming with me. It was 2008. Katie Handel was 17, living in Louisiana, and pregnant she had checked into the hotel expecting to spend some time with her big sister she had no idea why there was a stranger towering over her bed and grabbing her arm I was scared very scared Katie didn't know who the man was but her family did they were worried about her so they'd hired him because they thought he could help he looked kind of dirty he was very scruffy He didn't say, my name's Daniel, your mom sent me. It was nothing like that. It was nothing to make me feel comfortable. It was the shock factor and the kidnap technique that they use. At first, Katie fought back. It was instinct. But the man was stronger, and he dragged her out of bed. I knew at that point I was pregnant, so I didn't want to go the hard way, whichever way that meant. And... He grabbed me, pulled me down the stairs of the hotel, and they took me to Integrity House. That surprise visit, it's how a lot of girls we talked to were first introduced to Integrity House and Daniel Taylor. This is Sent Away, an investigative podcast from the Salt Lake Tribune, KUER, and APM reports. Episode two, What They Saved. I'm Jess Camiller. If you haven't listened to our first episode yet, you should press pause and start there. We're continuing the story of Integrity House. It was a treatment program for troubled girls. And almost 20 years ago, the state of Utah gave the people who ran it a second chance.
1: And I remember when we walked into this space There were girls that were behind me, were like, I don't want to do this. They were scared. There wasn't a headlamp for every girl. I didn't have a lamp. The girls I was with didn't have a headlamp. I heard a lot of ruckus of
0: something rolling, and then I heard a lot of people screaming. It was loud and
1: terrifying. You knew something bad had happened.
2: Rock. Holy crap, man. That is quite a fall. She was obviously dead. There was no chance that we could save her.
3: Her heart just quit, just gave out.
4: Huh, I thought she slipped and fell.
3: They just weren't prepared. Unfortunately, it was a huge error in judgment.
2: Why is nobody stepping up and saying there needs to be some protocol, some regulations, some, like, how could it get any worse? I mean, what the hell?
0: A girl at Integrity House had died. The state government might have been able to shut the place down over that, but it didn't. Instead, its top regulator tried to force the program to improve its operations. The business stayed open, and the regulator saw that as a success.
3: And they went on to operate well for, you know, quite a while since.
0: In this episode, our reporting team looks at how well Integrity House and the government agency that oversaw it actually operated in the years that followed. What it was like for the girls who lived in that house every day. What the people who worked there saw. And what government regulators did when they found out about it.
4: I'm Curtis Gilbert. I'm an investigative journalist and I work for APM Reports. By mid-2003... Integrity House had the state off its back. It was free not just to continue operations, but to grow. Over the next few years, Utah gave its owners licenses to operate two more treatment programs, and they also expanded into Arizona. For most of its history, Integrity House was run by Daniel Taylor. He had a few different titles over the years, and some official documents list him as an owner, although he says his older brother was the one who actually owned it. But Daniel was basically the guy in charge. And he wasn't just pushing papers around. Daniel would also do transports. That's an industry term for what happened to Katie Handel, the pregnant teenager in that Louisiana hotel room. Daniel would pick girls up from wherever they lived and take them back to Utah. And why, as the director, are you the one who goes and does that? Not all the time. But you did it a, a bunch. I mean, we talked to a bunch of girls.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I did it several times, just whenever we didn't have, have someone else that would be able to go do it or whatnot.
4: Yeah. And meet the family, meet the parents. You talk to a lot of former residents, and not just of Integrity House, but like any kind of program. And that transport, that's brutal, you know? Yeah. Because you surprise them, right? Not all of them. Okay. Not all of them. How do you decide whether you need to do it that way versus the-
3: their parents? Sometimes they, their parents are worried that they're not going to come or they're going to run away or whatever. And so they'll keep it hidden from them until we show
4: up. One of the girls Daniel surprised was Stephanie Balderston. I hated him from the very beginning. It was 2008, the day before her 17th birthday. Stephanie thought her grandmother was taking her out for dinner and a movie. But when they got to the parking lot outside the local Chili's, Daniel Taylor was there. And he dragged her out of the car.
1: To this day, if I see people that even look similar to him, it stops me dead in my tracks. And I see him all the time, it's really bizarre. Like in Costco or something. And you like look over and you see some random person and in my head it's him. And I I freeze and I'm terrified. And I immediately have this wave of emotion and fear that comes through me. And I start having flashbacks of my transport.
4: Daniel Taylor does make an impression on people. He's over six feet tall, but he speaks in almost a whisper. Dark hair, narrow face, often wearing sunglasses. Stephanie still has nightmares about him.
1: In my opinion, I feel like they're called night terrors, actually, because I wake up in the middle of the night screaming, crying all the time. And I think that's one thing every survivor that I've ever talked to, all of us go back to the trauma of that transport and how it is the seriously, like, the most inhumane, crazy thing that you'll ever experience in your life.
4: And transports aren't just an Integrity House thing or a Daniel Taylor thing. The stranger showing up without warning and forcing a kid into a vehicle, that's a pretty common way for kids to get taken to a treatment program. And amazingly, Utah's legislature just passed its first law governing the companies that do those transports. The vote happened last week and all the law does is require the companies to carry insurance and register with the state
5: are you having trouble with your daughter
2: are you getting along do you fight a lot is she angry depressed is she pregnant having problems in school is she into drugs or alcohol has she run away is she hanging out with the wrong crowd is she withdrawn is she asking for help Integrity House offers solutions.
4: The company's 2012 marketing video promises help with reactive attachment disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, anger, authority problems, post-traumatic stress, and as if all that weren't enough, more. So what would Integrity House do to help girls experiencing all those serious psychological and behavioral problems?
5: Basically... Every single day, all we do is write essays. Essays.
2: Endless, mindless essays. That's pretty much what I remember doing
5: 90% of the time.
4: Girls were taken from their homes and sent across the country for seven days a week, 24-hour-a-day residential treatment. In many cases, their families or their counties or their states paid thousands of dollars a month so they could sit around for hours and hours writing essays. You'd get assigned one just about every time you broke the rules. And former resident Lauren Alexander says there were a lot of rules.
5: You could not walk in and out of a room without permission. You could not stand up without permission. If you were caught closing your eyes and laying your head on your desk instead of writing, there was another consequence. If you spent too long in the bathroom, if you burped and you didn't say, excuse me, okay, well, here's a consequence for looking at me wrong. Here's a consequence for your attitude. Here's a consequence for talking without permission. I was just like, oh my gosh, they really knew how to dig those
4: in deep. 500-word essays, 1,000-word essays, 5,000-word essays, all by hand, explaining what they did wrong, and promising to do better. At night, the employees would have to count the words to make sure the essays were long enough. Essays were such a big part of the program at Integrity House that it had an official essay room. The room was a converted garage attached to the house. It's also the classroom where the girls had school. Looking at it from the street, you'd think there were a couple cars in there. You wouldn't know it was jammed full of desks and chairs. And girls who'd racked up a lot of consequences would spend hours and hours, day after day, in that converted garage, writing essays.
1: Stacks and stacks and stacks. Hundreds, literally hundreds. So there were girls who were in the essay room for months at a time.
4: Daniel Taylor says he got the idea for the essays from some of the other treatment programs where he used to work.
3: I wanted them to think about their behavior, how it affects them, how it affects others, and what they can do to stop and think about it. So stop, listen, think before you react. Was it effective, the essays? Yeah, it's effective. You saw it work? Yes, I have. And and I've had other um, students, past residents, tell me, hey, if it wasn't for that, we'd still be going down the same old pattern. You broke that cycle for us, so to speak. They didn't like writing essays, did they? All of them have told me that they're one heck of a writer now.
4: We've interviewed more than 20 women who went through Integrity House, and we didn't hear that from any of them. What we did hear was that girls who had lots of essays to write would miss out on other parts of the treatment program. They still got one-on-one therapy once a week. State law required that. But they sometimes didn't get to participate in peer support groups. Dana Stone was at Integrity House back in 2008. And she saw the whole system as completely counterproductive.
1: It's silly to
5: me to give consequence after consequence after consequence to the same person and keep them from therapy groups. That's what they're doing. They're keeping you from therapy.
4: Dana works in a hospital now. She connects people with treatment for drug problems. And she says the girls at Integrity House needed more therapy and less punishment
5: for people who have like oppositional defiancy disorder, a place like that's a nightmare. And half of the girls like had ODD. Like I was lucky and I didn't, but it's a freaking psychological condition. Making someone write essays over and over again isn't gonna help. I know so many people who deserved better than that. They were kids and they needed help.
4: And essays weren't the only thing that could happen to a girl who broke the rules. There were also physical holds. They're often called restraints. That's when one or more staff grab a girl to keep her from moving. Sometimes they'd pin her to the floor. Integrity House used restraint techniques developed by a company called Positive Control Systems, or PCS. It's based in Utah, but its website has claimed it's used in 15 states. The company recently rebranded itself as Positive Communication Systems. But this video, posted on its owner's YouTube channel back in 2012, gives you a feel for the way it was marketed before. It shows how to control someone by twisting their arm behind their back and bending their wrist forward as far as it'll go. It looks painful and former residents say it was. Hello? Hey, Kat, can you hear me?
5: Yeah, one sec.
4: Kat Schmoke grew up in Michigan. Her teenage years were tough, doing drugs, running away, got suspended from school, spent time in a psychiatric hospital. Her parents sent her away for treatment when she was 17 on the advice of her therapist. Did you find your journal?
5: I did, I did, yeah.
4: The cover of Kat's journal from back then is surprisingly cheerful. A peace sign, A Smiling Dinosaur, lyrics from Lil Wayne. But inside, it documents the miserable nine months she spent at Integrity House.
5: Okay, this is April 24th, 2009. And I said, and right now I really just can't believe this is happening. I don't understand how I can get into this much trouble for something I had no part in. This is messed up.
4: Kat got in trouble with Daniel Taylor for something that seems very 2009.
5: I guess maybe some of the girls had been on MySpace and he accused me of doing it and said that I had like orchestrated this plot or something.
4: MySpace, the great <laughs> social networking site, MySpace.
5: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, he told me that I was lying and that he like I needed to tell him the truth. Then he would just like grab your arm and then pull it behind your back. In a way that felt like he was going to like dislocate your shoulder.
4: And so you're not attacking him or any other staff or threatening to harm yourself
5: in any way? No, not at all.
4: He's restraining you for lying.
5: Yeah.
4: Daniel says he doesn't remember that incident with Kat. And he says he never restrained anyone unless he had to. I
3: didn't really care for it too much, to be honest.
4: Yeah, it's not the, the residents didn't either. They said it hurts. Was it supposed to hurt? So I guess it's
3: supposed to bring compliance, but mm-hmm. the last thing you want to do is, is restrain somebody. It is dehumanizing, I feel.
4: Throughout Kat's journal, she writes about how uncomfortable she feels whenever Daniel Taylor is in the house. I hate it, she writes. He makes me feel very anxious. And Kat wasn't the only former resident who told us staff restrained girls more often than they needed to. Former employees said that, too. Utah's licensing rules say employees are only allowed to use restraints if a resident poses a threat to themselves, others, or to property. But as for the enforcement of that rule, well, once a year, an inspector from the state would come to each of Utah's teen treatment programs with a 14-page checklist. The inspector would tick down the list and mark whether the place was in compliance. The restraint Kat described would have happened in the spring of 2009. And just four months later, the inspector swung by and concluded the restraint policies at Integrity House were just fine. Kat wasn't able to tell her parents how much she hated Integrity House. The painful restraints, the mind-numbing essays. The staff read the girls' letters and monitored their phone calls. If girls complained about Integrity House, staff would accuse them of trying to manipulate their parents. Lots of girls told us that. You could be disciplined for manipulation. So finally, after seven months, Kat and another girl made a plan to escape. They slipped out a window, hid in the bushes jumped a fence, waved down a passing car, and got a hold of a phone.
5: I remembered my grandma picked up first and just being like in tears and like being like, I haven't been able to tell you anything of what's going on. Like all of these letters that I'm writing you where I'm like, oh yeah, things are great. And I appreciate this so much are just like lies that I've been forced to say. And like this place is so much worse than you could even imagine. And I can't be here. I'm not just, like, saying that. Like, I need to go home.
4: Kat's family pulled her out of Integrity House a couple months later. But her experience there stuck with her. So in 2018, nine years after she left, she tracked down her old therapist, the one who recommended her parents send her there. She found him on Facebook and sent him a message.
5: And I said, I'm reaching out to you now because there are some things I've wanted to share with you for quite some time now. The last time we spoke, I was 16 years old and headed down a pretty dark path. Your recommendation for my parents to place me at Integrity House changed my life forever. Each day I woke at Integrity House was like waking up in a living hell. Some of the things I saw and went through are still difficult for me to process today, 10 years later. I'm telling you all of this not because I want you to feel guilty or responsible, but simply because I no longer want to hold resentment towards you were the choices that you made. I've heard that you're no longer in practice, so the things I'm telling you now probably won't save any other young girls from living through the hell I've experienced. However, I've been needing to share this with you and let you know how your life impacted mine. Wow. Yeah.
4: Did he write back?
5: Yeah, he did. He said, Catherine, I'm so sorry. I'm still in practice 10 hours a week so I do still see people but I don't refer kids to residential treatment anymore. This is due to what happened to you and also what other kids experienced when at other places. I only know of one person that had successful treatment. Most programs do not work. Please know we're all trying to act in your best regard. I'm glad you wrote me. I understand your anger and resentment. I do think that you're a strong young woman. I'd be glad to talk to you anytime, And then he gave me a cell phone number.
4: Did you ever talk to him?
5: I didn't. I just kind of felt like I said what I needed to say, and I didn't reach out to him again.
4: Kat's therapist was more than a 1,000 miles away in Michigan. He couldn't see what was really going on at Integrity House. But the people who work there every day, in a minute, we'll find out what they saw and what happened when one of them reported it to the state.
2: This is David Fox. I'm a reporter with KUER Public Radio in Salt Lake City. Over the past year, I've spent a lot of time in the southwest part of the state tracking down people who worked at Integrity House, I really wanted to understand what it was like to work there. Howdy. How's it going? Good. Uh pretty easy to figure out it's me, right? Yeah, <laughs> the guy with the microphone. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> the problem there. I met up with Chris Curry before COVID vaccines were widely available. So we went to a park near his house and found a place where we could have a sensitive conversation. Okay. This is, without a doubt, one of the weirdest interview locations I've ever picked. But it's private. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> um, we are currently in the middle of a, basically a thicket right next to a baseball diamond sitting on a log in a patch of dirt. I took the dirt. Gave Chris the log. When you first found out that a reporter um, was looking into Integrity House 10 I, years down the road, uh-huh. what do you think? Uh, I was
6: not at all surprised. I, I think there's definitely a culture of guilt associated with people who have worked here.
2: Chris's family moved from Oregon to Cedar City, Utah, when he was 13. They bought a place not too far from his grandparents. It was right down the street from Integrity House.
6: I didn't know what it was for a long time. I don't even think my parents knew that it was even there for the first couple years. Well, I mean, there's no signs in the outside of the building. Yeah, there's there's no nothing to identify it. Like, the biggest tell now for me, having been in the industry, is just looking for like a fifteen-passenger van. If there's two of those parked outside of a building that you would think is just a normal
2: house, you'll pretty much guarantee that it's a, a facility of some kind. In 2005, Chris started at the university in town. He needed a job where he could work nights, and some of his classmates were already working at Integrity House. Even so, he still can't believe he got hired. I have no experience with like dealing
6: with humans who have gone through trauma or are under severe stress. Like, I had nothing like that. I was 19. (laughs) I was a year older than some of the girls going there. I could have been like a high school student with some of them. But Chris had power over them. And he quickly learned that he was expected to use it. Specifically, we were told to be very nitpicky, immediately press these consequences. Like, if a small incremental infraction occurs, that is a problem. I believe the explanation we got was that we were going to make the consequences more severe to try to curb the behavior, but if anything, it just made the girls fight back more. Chris says that came directly from Daniel Taylor and his wife, But I definitely remember them threatening to write us up if we didn't write the girls up more. Like, there was definitely the expectation of, you should be giving out so many consequences every day.
2: Daniel Taylor said he didn't recall anything like that. But other former employees backed up what Chris said. More consequences meant the girls had to write even more essays. But the repercussions went further than that. Integrity House made residents progress through a series of levels in order to graduate. Many teen treatment programs are structured this way. It's sometimes called a token economy. Good behavior earns you points— Get enough points, you move to the next level. Go through all six levels, and you get to go home. But points can also be taken away. Girls would lose them every time they got a consequence. Knocking off their
6: points would prolong their stay. Like, they would lose levels, even if they got so many infractions,
2: which would kick them back months. And the longer a girl stayed in the program, the more money the Taylor family made. Chris Curry wishes he had spoken up at the time. And it turns out, there was someone... Who did? Well, sorry, like I said, my girlfriend doesn't want me to use my name. So we're going to call him Aaron. He worked at Integrity House back in 2008. When you first meet Aaron, he seems pretty chill, kind of reserved, but get him talking about how Integrity House treated the girls who live there. And he gets intense. So we're putting him there, isolating
7: him from, from everything and everybody that they've known. So they're already being torn down just by that. But then you have the staff treating them like cattle. They're just, like I said, they're just breaking them down and keeping them down. You don't have anybody saying, hey, let me help you out. You don't have human connection. You have wardens, jailers,
2: cowboys up on their horses watching cattle run by. Aaron told us that right from the beginning, he was disturbed by how employees treated the girls. And there was one day he saw a low-level employee do something that he thought went way too far. Female line staff
7: was talking to one of the girls. And the girl just, you know, sorry, back up, you're in my space. You know, just kind of stating her boundaries because they were really close, you know. And line staff didn't like it Instant. Physical
2: takedown. It was one of those restraints. The ones that you're only supposed to do in an emergency. So I'm like, ah, that's wrong. From where Aaron stood, it looked like the employee physically restrained the girl just to show her who was in charge. And that was obviously against the rules. So he decided to say something. Go through the proper channels. He wrote up a report, gave it to his supervisor and waited. Never was talked to about it. Um, Just kind of disappeared. Aaron realized he needed a new strategy. He started taking careful notes of everything that made him uncomfortable, and he distilled them into a letter. A letter to Daniel. Daniel. Aaron's central complaint is about the attitude of his
7: fellow employees. The better-than-thou snobbish, short-temperedness and ignorance of the staff from the top down runs rampant, making this a would-be haven. A labyrinth of treachery. Aaron has a way with words. And bear in mind,
2: I did go to school to be an English teacher. The letter goes on for a few pages, and Aaron gets specific. He raises questions about restraints and consequences and staff lacking background checks.
7: So, what happens when you give that letter to Daniel? Stop getting shifts. So I call and say, hey. Am I working? Oh, no, he doesn't have me on the shift. So I think I went through a couple weeks of that before I finally said, Daniel,
2: we got to have a sit down. I need to know what's going on. Aaron eventually got that meeting, and he says it went just like he expected.
7: I knew he was going to fire me, and the language started going, you know, we don't think this is the right place for you. And I'm like, yeah, it's not. I can't work. I can't. Seeing what I've seen, putting up with what I put up with, knowing they're not going to make any meaningful changes, except when the right eyes are looking, I'd go crazy.
2: Daniel told us he didn't recall this situation. But Aaron hadn't just reached out to Daniel. He'd also taken his allegations directly to the state government. He typed up a list of 14 specific times when he believed Integrity House violated state regulations or policies. One of his concerns was that Daniel Taylor had the girls come to his house and other properties he and his family owned to do cleaning and other chores. He's basically having the parents pay him to have his girls work on his property. We brought this up with Daniel Taylor, and he flat out denied that the girls would ever do chores for his family. What they would do is come
3: and get ready for parent conferences and stuff like that and cook and and stuff for their parents when their
4: parents came to town and stuff like that. They wouldn't clean for you or babysit for you? No. uh, In this house or in any other house? No. They they could have came
3: up, Mm -hmm. but not to work or anything like that. What would they do then? To get out of the facility. And it would have been a higher level
2: group, but that would probably be the only thing. We were pretty surprised when we heard Daniel say that, because the thing about girls doing housework or yard work for him, it wasn't just Aaron who said that. Another former employee wrote about it in her resignation letter to Integrity House years later, and we heard the same thing from lots of former residents.
1: He would have the girls that were behaving well actually go up to his house and clean. We'd go and clean their house
5: for them. Clean up their property. If you were good, you went over there.
4: So there was a reward to get to clean their house? Yeah. It was fucking weird. It was
0: really, really weird. They thought that that was therapeutic to use this as free labor and then somehow spin it as it being some kind of enriching exercise.
2: The cleaning thing was just one part of the complaint Aaron sent to the state. He also raised concerns about restraints, intimidation, nutrition, the condition of the property, and infectious disease protocols, among other things. Two days after he fired off his letter, Aaron got a voicemail from a state inspector named Greg Hurst. I mean, he, he let me know basically he was coming out
7: uh, sometime soon, August, um, and that he would just take a look when he got there.
2: Hearst didn't jump in his car and drive to Cedar City right away. He was already planning to come out for his annual inspection the next week, and he apparently figured that would be soon enough. Remember the 14-page checklist? It was one of those visits. And as usual, Integrity House passed. Hearst dinged them for some paperwork violations, but he didn't issue any penalties. We asked Hearst for an interview, but he declined our request. His office told us they don't answer questions about specific incidents and that we should just read the notes Hearst wrote at the time about his visit. So that's what we did. And there's nothing in there about the more serious allegations Aaron had raised. Not a word about staff intimidating the girls or the Taylor family using them as free labor. When you go back and look at the checklist from Hearst's visit, It paints such a different picture from the one you get talking to so many of the people who lived and worked at Integrity House back then. And that's unsettling, because that checklist looks almost exactly like the checklist for every other teen treatment program in Utah. We know because we looked at all of them, five years worth, hundreds of checklists, more than 50,000 check marks. And we found almost all of the marks were in the box labeled compliant. The average score, was 98%. It was like a giant stack of straight-A report cards. Those checklists are the government's main tool for making sure kids in these programs are protected. So either the programs are all perfect or the tool is broken. What did you expect would happen when you reached out to them?
7: at the very least, maybe more information from me. Can you please tell us more of what's happening? But I didn't even get that. I mean, it, it, it didn't even seem like it piqued their interest, you know?
2: Do you feel like the state
7: Did everything it could, or... No, I don't think I lifted a finger.
2: So once again, the state of Utah gave Integrity House its seal of approval. The state's inspections and checklists detected hardly any problems there, even after a former employee sent in a detailed complaint. And there was lots of stuff we heard from former residents that wasn't reported.
1: Obviously I was 16, I was old enough to know better. But again,
4: she was an adult. You know, there are lines that the staff are not allowed to cross. Right. Even if the kids wanna cross them. And those lines were, I mean, they were
2: crossed. Yeah, it was pretty bad. I wish
5: I was lying. Like I wish that that didn't happen.
2: Was there anyone else? Any other former residents who came and lived with you?
3: Yes. Did the state know about that? I think they were 18. So it wasn't the state's business? No.
0: From Integrity House to Daniel's House, the blurry lines between the Taylor's business and the Taylor family, and what the state of Utah knew about it. That's next week on Sentaway. If you haven't already, take a moment to subscribe to Sent Away in your favorite podcast app. That way you won't miss a single episode. And it'd be great if you'd write us a review too. There's more to our investigation of the teen treatment industry in Utah. You can find it on our website. It's sentaway.org. Sent Away is produced by APM Reports, KUBR, and the Salt Lake Tribune. It's reported by David Fox, Curtis Gilbert, and me, Jessica Miller. Data reporting by Willcraft. Kate Cahan is our editor. She had help from Elaine Clark and Matt Canham. Fact checking by Betsy Towner Levine. Our web editor is Andy Cruz. Michael Alcesar is the managing producer. Scoring and production by Nancy Rosenbaum was sound mixing from Alex Simpson. Engineering by David Childs. Original music by Roddy Nickpoor. We also had help from our great intern, Hannah Ikromedine. Support for Sent Away was provided by Arnold Ventures, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the Hollyhock Foundation.